It's time. We are not called to be nice. Sandy Rios. Welcome, Sandy. Thanks for being here. We are often called to be confrontational. And here with me in D.C. is Fox News contributor Sandy Rios. And you still like me or you you don't like me, James? Are you okay? You're all right. (laughs) I'm a musician. I can't help it. Uh, Longtime Fox News contributor Sandy Rios, thanks very much for being with us. We have, I think it's four to one youth. In America, wants gay marriage. Our kids are the product of public schools. No wonder they poll the way they do. It's time to stand up or we're going to lose everything we have. Director of Governmental Affairs for the American Family Association. Step up, speak up, say something, do something. This isn't a game. This is real life. Sandy Rios is with the American Family Association. A pro-life radio talk show host. Some things are worth fighting for. That's a big turkey. Power vested in me as President of the United States, I pardon you. I pardon you this Thanksgiving. Go ahead, say something. There you go. pardon. But I also have to pardon you. Thank you, everybody. Hope you have a happy, happy, happy Thanksgiving. It's Andy Rios with you. This is Thanksgiving 2021, and that was uh, President Joe Biden pardoning the turkey known as peanut butter and the alternative known as jelly. A little bit of fun, and thank goodness we need to find some fun, even if it's with President Biden. He said some funny things. He said, "Uh, today we're going to talk turkey. He also talked about uh, they chose these turkeys out of a flock of 20 based on their temperament, appearance, and he said, I suspect, vaccination status. Yes, instead of getting basted, these turkeys are getting boosted. Okay, so that's what President Biden said. I have to admit that was funny. And so these turkeys, peanut butter and jelly, spent the night at the Wilton Intercontinental Hotel, which is one of the most beautiful, it's certainly most historic, but it's also gorgeous hotels in downtown D.C. It uh, goes back to the time of President Lincoln. So they, there's a picture of them in the room. They are beautiful. Tur- I've never seen such beautiful turkeys. These are beautiful turkeys. They are from Indiana, Jasper, Indiana. So they're going to be flown back. They're back there now, I guess, at Purdue University's Animal Science Research and Education Center, where they're going to live out the rest of their lives. Well, we'll see, right? Right. Well, turkeys usually live about 10 years, so I don't know if they will be pardoned forever. We, uh, we'll never know, will we? So uh, that was just a little bit of fun. By the way, that first presidential pardon started with Abraham Lincoln, who instructed the White House to uh, gave, give a, one bird a pass because his son had grown so fond of it. So that was the first official presidential pardon. Uh, and, but the official a ceremony dates back to 63 when the Washington Post reported that President John F. Kennedy gave a pardon and reprieve to the Thanksgiving turkey, which has been presented at the White House by the National Turkey Federation since 1947 when Harry Truman was in office. So there you go. That's the history of the turkey pardon. Those are some beautiful turkeys. They really are peanut butter and jelly, and that's just a little bit of fun. Well, I hope that you are planning uh, this today and uh, the next few days to have some really deep and meaningful times with your family. I know it's challenging right now. Uh, It's challenging because we are a divided nation, and that means a lot of our families are divided. It reminds me very much of the days of the Civil War when families were divided not by, you know, Black Lives Matter or social justice or whatever, or vaccination status, but they were divided by their opinions about race uh, and uh, about slavery. 
uh, and about whether uh, us, the South could have autonomy and have slaves uh, and the North, whether the North could make them abolish their slavery system. So uh, you can imagine how tense their Thanksgiving was uh, during that time where families had to sit down or they refused to. So it's uh, not an easy time. It kind of sometimes brings to a head these divisions between us and the people that we love so very much. Uh, but maybe this uh, this Thanksgiving we can sort of put that stuff aside and try to find some common ground, just like I just did with President Biden. I appreciated his uh, laughter and his enjoyment of this Thanksgiving holiday. I wonder if he understands what people around him are trying to do to uh, to denigrate and erase that history. Uh, before I get to that, though, I want to talk to you about Abraham Lincoln. I talked about, you know, he was our president uh, during the time when the Civil War was fought, four years, he paid a dear personal price for that. He bore it personally. He had sleepless nights. He lost two sons, uh, as a, one before he became president and one afterwards in the White House. A sorrowful, sorrowful time. Uh, and his writing about it are in blazoned in the walls of the Lincoln Monument. If you've ever been to Washington, this is one of my favorite spots, my husband and I, ride our bikes to the Washington to the Lincoln Monument all the time and it never fails to move me to climb those steps and read Abraham Lincoln's words about the Civil War and about slavery. It all comes together, doesn't it? It's ironic, you know, President Lincoln was the president that freed the slaves, the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh and I when we were in Kentucky a few years ago, uh, my husband and I we went to the birthplace of Abraham Lincoln. He was born in Kentucky, after all. And we're from the state of Illinois. We we claim him. We are the land of Lincoln. But he was actually born in Kentucky, and we saw uh, really wonderful, uh, art, uh, genuine artifacts. Uh, artifacts. I don't know if it's old enough to be artifacts, but uh, pieces of history from his log cabin. And one of them was a Bible, a family Bible. And also, I learned in that museum that uh Abraham Lincoln's parents were strong abolitionists way back. Uh, so that was not anything new for him to take the side uh, against slavery and uh, to debate Stephen Douglas in those famous debates, the ones that probably made him president. But um, he saw then during the Civil War, you see how this all comes together with slavery, he is the first president who issued a uh, proclamation for a National Day of Thanksgiving. And he did that on October the 3rd of 1863. Let me read to you what he wrote. No human counsel hath devised, nor hath any mortal hand worked out these great things. They are the gracious gifts of the Most High God, who, while dealing with us in anger for our sins, hath nevertheless remembered mercy. I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States and those who are sojourning in foreign lands to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November next as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. It is announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations are blessed whose God is the Lord. It has seemed fit to me and proper that God should be solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledged as with one heart and one voice by the whole American people. And so that's the genesis of this holiday. It is at the very heart of it. Uh, and it's the reason why uh, it's a very big deal. It, it, it's, isn't, it is interesting to me this year that Thanksgiving 
seems to be just waning in terms of emphasis. That retailers and uh, commercials, they make so little of it. They're jumping, you know, right to Christmas, which I'm happy to celebrate Christmas. I love it too. But uh, they don't emphasize the birth of Christ. They emphasize buying gifts because that's what they want you to do. But uh, we are losing, you know, some of our original meaning. And that's one of the reasons on Thanksgiving I really like to take time to sort of take you back. And we're certainly going to do that in just a second with our special guest, Bill Federer, who is a historian, love Bill's stuff, love what he writes. And we're going to talk about that first Thanksgiving. But before we do that, I mentioned that I wondered if President Biden understood how the people around him and the people he's hired and put in place have been working to undermine and deconstruct the history of the country. Uh, And I'll give you an example. This is uh, on MSNBC just a few days ago, and this is a guy named um, uh, Joyce Ross, uh, and he talks about the first Thanksgiving from him his perspective because he knows so much, you know. He was there with Lincoln, I guess. (laughs) I don't know. He must have had a front row seat that none of us had, but this is his bent on the first Thanksgiving. Let's listen. Okay. My name is Jossie Ross. I come from the Amstapipakani Nation. The mythology of Thanksgiving closely mirrors the mythology of America. That mythology is the image that white Americans love to see of themselves. White settlers come to a strange land in good faith, bringing something of great value that enriches the people who are already here. The natives also bring something of immense value, equal exchange. That closely mimics the mythology of white America. It is how America wants to see itself. The truth, of course, of Thanksgiving is much different. The truth is pilgrims did not bring turkey, sweet potato pie, or cranberries to Thanksgiving. They could not. They were broke. They were broken. Their hands were out. They were begging. They brought nothing of value. But they got fed. They got schooled. Thanksgiving. It makes sense. There is much for white Americans to be thankful for. But I'm still trying to figure out what indigenous people received of value. Instead of bringing stuffing and biscuits, those settlers brought genocide and violence. That genocide and violence is still on the menu as state-sponsored violence against Native and Black Americans is commonplace. And violent private white supremacy is celebrated and subsidized. From Stonechild Chief Stick to Mike Brown to Renee Davis to Breonna Taylor to Eric Gardner, Indigenous and Black people are still being murdered by those paid to protect us. From Ahmaud Arbery to Trayvon Martin, white Americans are still killing Native and Black Americans with no fear of reprisal. They brought chattel slavery to Africans and Native people. That still happens through the prison industrial complex that imprisons the descendants of enslaved Africans and Natives at far disparate numbers. That is the reality of Thanksgiving. Many of us are still waiting for white Americans to bring some value, still waiting for white America to match the mythology of Thanksgiving. Freedom, justice, equality, reparations for two and a half billion acres of stolen native land, reparations for 246 years of stolen labor, reparations for stealing native children. Stop the killing. It's still happening. Stop the theft. It's still happening. Return the land. Match the mythology. Then and only then we can all be equally thankful. Peace. Okay, so thanks, Jossie. We feel encouraged now. And, you know, interesting, as soon as he says peace, he breaks into a great big smile. He must be really suffering uh, based on what—so he's not really suffering. You know, that reminds me very much of uh, 
like if you go back and you, let's say you were watching a wedding video that took place with your grandparents, I don't know, or your parents, and uh, it was beautiful, and there was a celebration. There were children with flowers, and there was happy music, and you're looking at it in, with the benefit of 30 years, and uh, you then start to recall how Grandpa ended up treating Grandma, and what we didn't know then was this and that, and see that flower girl, she was this and that. You know, that's kind of the same spirit of, like, poison that you may have family members who are that way, uh, who are friends who love to go through and deconstruct and destroy. Uh, you know, it's not impossible. First of all, I shouldn't even give this to Jossie, but it's not impossible for two very different tellings to be true of the same story. Uh, it's called synoptics, seen together. Uh, I don't think what he has to say, Some there's some elements in truth. It certainly is a sad story for American Indians, uh, the, the displacement of them on the what was their land. Of course, a lot of the land that they that Americans, the, the new, to be Americans took, uh, was not even populated. So you could argue about that. And it's, of course, been the history of civilizations that people have come in and taken the land of other people. You just can't unring that bell. It's really just kind of the nature of travel and movement and the strife between nations and tribes. Uh, so uh, it is sad, but that's uh, when we celebrate the beginning of America, we think of a lot of the wonderful things that happened, and we do know that God's hand was on the beginnings of that. Sometimes um, that doesn't always mean that it's good for everyone. God has a purpose that he's accomplishing that's good for his will and good for all of mankind, but not necessarily good for the individuals involved. Also, Barnes & Noble now, in keeping with what Jossie just said, is coming out with all these books on the 169 Project, 1619 Project, where you know it's all about slavery. That's all about our history. It's just all about slavery. I would just say, briefly, I have no problem uh, exploring the history of uh, more than we have of uh, black Americans. I have done that. They've got some of the best tapes of uh, slaves who were freed after uh, Abraham Lincoln, like they were taped in the early 30s. I used to play those on the air. And some of the stories of what happened to uh, black families after they were emancipated, they're great stories and the history of African-Americans in this country. I love that stuff, but this stuff is twisted. This stuff is twisted and not accurate, and it only gives one bitter, horrible side. Well, we're going to tell the story of Thanksgiving when we return on this Thanksgiving 2021. I hope you stay tuned. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. Pilgrims came to New England because it seemed to be relatively empty. They could do whatever they wanted, no one would bother them. America represented a fresh page and especially a clean slate. They just wanted to get out of England. They came for freedom to create a godly city, a place where you could live a pure life, a perfect life under God's rules. If the Pilgrims had known what they were in for, they almost certainly wouldn't have done it. They were really on their own, and they had this very tenuous lifeline back to England. It was an incredibly inhospitable environment in terms of climate. New England, of course, had very cold weather in the winter, and so it was very, very difficult for the settlers early on. 
and that first year was devastating for them. They were dying of starvation, they were dying of disease. One of the things the pilgrims discovered relatively early on was how little they knew about how to farm. All right, that's just a little touch of a History Channel special on Thanksgiving. It's not new, because <laughs> otherwise they probably wouldn't mention God now, but they did. They, oops, they mentioned that and kind of gave the great, a great context for the story. Uh, it is Thanksgiving 2022, and personally, 2021, sorry, personally, I never get tired of this story. Uh, I, I really don't. I think it's one of the most beautiful stories. When they say that we have a unique story, they mean it, because no other nation has a story like this. And someone who's kind of made his life telling this story and all the other stories of America tracing its great patriots, uh, their sayings, uh, just tracing history in general, is William Federer. Uh, he has put together a book that I use like an encyclopedia I have for years on radio called America's God and Country, Encyclopedia of Quotations. It's uh, I, I cited it earlier when I read uh, Abraham Lincoln's proclamation for Thanksgiving. But Bill is a nationally known speaker. He's a best-selling author. He's the president of AmeriSearch. It's a publishing company dedicated to researching America's noble heritage. He has a, what's called the American Minute that he puts out every single day, which gives you a sense of the history of that day. And you can go to AmericanMinute.com and uh, receive an email with that. It's, it's broadcast on radio stations across the country. And um, also, he has a book that's relatively new about uh, the kind of putting this Thanksgiving in context. It's called The Treacherous World of the 16th Century and how the pilgrims escaped it. And so Bill joins us this morning to help celebrate this Thanksgiving 2021 together. Bill, thanks for joining me. Well, it's great to be with you, Sandy. Hey, Bill, I'm going to ask you something personal. I've met some of your family. You have, for instance, an absolutely gorgeous daughter. So I want to know what you guys are doing for Thanksgiving. Well, we have uh, two of our kids down in Florida where we're now living, and uh, two we're going to be visiting with via Skype. But... uh, uh, it's always a special time of the year, and th- thank you for asking. Well, you're very welcome. All right, well, Bill, um, there's a lot of distortion. I started the show, today's show, talking about uh, the the smearing of America's history, and certainly it's true that um, we have a blight on our history from slavery. We have a blight, perhaps you could argue, over how the Americans treated Indians, not the Columbus treatment, because I don't think Columbus was guilty of anything personally, from my perspective, reading his diaries. Uh, But the Indians were displaced, and so there are some legitimate complaints. uh, But the distortion is really pretty overwhelming. First, say a word about that. As you hear this stuff like the 1619 Project, uh, what are your thoughts about that for Americans celebrating Thanksgiving today, of all colors? Right. So the uh, Caribbean had two type of natives that Columbus met on his first voyage. They were the peaceful Arawaks. On his second voyage, they found human bones cooking in pots, gnawed bones. Uh, Lo and behold, these were the Caribs, which is the Spanish word for cannibal. And they had come up from South America and they were going island by island, depopulating, sodomizing, cutting off private parts and fattening up. Uh, having children with native Indian women uh, on these islands and then eating the babies. Uh, uh, this uh, is uh, Had Columbus not come over, the Caribs would have depopulated the entire Caribbean. Uh, you have Cortez, right? He uh, conquered Mexico. Well, 
The reason he conquered it so easily with 500 men is because all the surrounding tribes joined Cortes because the Aztecs were capturing thousands of people and taking them to the top of their pyramids and ripping their hearts out uh, to the sun god and then letting uh, the uh, bodies roll down and they would be cannibalized. People thought, well, you know, Cortez's men just made up those stories. Well, five years ago, they were doing uh, construction, uh, shoring up the foundation of a building in downtown Mexico City, and they uncovered under the foundation entire towers of human skulls, amphitheaters of human skulls, thousands of them. And they were not just adult males. They were women and children. So they were not captives from battle. They were ritual sacrifices to these Aztec gods. Uh, this is pre-Columbus. They're cannibalizing, right? And then you see the Cheyenne, right? They got a hold of horses before the other Plains Indians did, and they just brutally just destroyed and killed and exterminated other Indian tribes. But you look at Africa. Uh, you know, you had the Ashanti tribe that would have ritual sacrifices whenever they would you know, the, the chief would die. They would cleanse the grave by killing a thousand people. They would have sacrifices of humans when there was a new moon. And um, But this is sort of like what the Egyptians did, right? It would, you would have a pharaoh die, and all his servants would be buried in the pyramid with him. It was considered an honor to be, you know, die with your pharaoh. And, uh, you know, Genghis Khan, when they had his funeral, they killed everybody they met along the way. And then they diverted a river and buried him and then re-diverted the river back. And then they killed anybody that had a part of the funeral. And uh, you, you go to the, uh, you know, the Japanese treated the Chinese and the Koreans terrible. Uh, you go to just about any country uh, throughout history, and you'll see that it, wherever there were kings on top, there were slaves on the bottom. And so slavery didn't start in 1619. It started the first time you had a king. And uh, then the, the captives of war were, uh, it was considered nice to, to not kill uh, the captives. And so they would sell them. And the, and But that's where it came from. And it was the Judeo-Christian belief that gradually worked to eradicate slavery. And then we eventually had a civil war. Really, no other country in the world had a civil war to get rid of slavery. Oh. Um, and so that's one of the things I want to bring out, is that pre-Columbus, it was a very dangerous place to be in the new world if you were uh, a non-Aztec or uh, a non-Carib or so forth. Uh, so you cannot say that the Europeans uh, spoiled the paradise. That's one of the things yeah, I'd like to point no, no, out. Yeah, no, that's good, Bill. And I think the, the, the point that I'd like to make from what you just said is that uh, the wickedness of man's heart has nothing to do with the color of his skin. Uh, you see that wickedness everywhere, and that's the point you just made. And then the thing that saved the world was the Judeo-Christian teaching about the preciousness of life and that there was a God and a creator. And uh, people that embrace that, it has nothing to do with color of skin. So the cure, the, the, uh, the, the disease and the cure are colorless. And so I think that's the part of the story of America. Let's... Um, but when you start talking to people like, I was just reading, Bards and Nobles coming out with this whole, they're introducing their 1619 curriculum, they're writing all these glowing things about uh, what's in it, they're featuring stories of uh, from African Americans, but it's the bitter brand of African Americans with this axe to grind over and over and over again. So Barnes and Noble's putting that out. How, how in the world, as a historian, do you sort, I know what you just said, 
But how do you sort out the bitterness that they are stirring up uh, with the history, especially of blacks and American Indians? How do you unring that bell, the damage that they've done? Right. So that's a classic concept called deconstruction. And you, uh, the communists would often do this, uh, really any conquering country would, where they would come into the country and portray the founders of the country negatively so that the people would be repulsed by them. Then you get the, the people into a neutral where they don't remember where they came from, and then you brainwash them into the future you have planned for them. So when Islam would come into a country, they would destroy the graves, the artwork, the, the history, would rename, rename everything uh, when the communists would come in. Right. You know, I was reading uh, someone telling me about Latvia, uh, that uh, they rewrote the textbooks to show that all the Latvians were were cave people until the Russians came in to bring civilization. And um, but the Chinese, uh, there was the third century B.C. was a Chinese emperor. uh, It was called the Warring States period. And a Chinese emperor won. His name was Quinshi Wangdi. And he was doing things differently than they had been done for centuries before, and he was being criticized for it, he decided to destroy all records of how things were done before. And he burnt tens of thousands of bamboo annal books. And, and so Mao Zedong copied this in China during the 1960s Cultural Revolution, where he destroyed the oldest Buddhist temple in <clears throat> excuse me, China. He, just, he destroyed the Great Gates of Beijing. He uh, wanted to eradicate the past, and so he had this a massive group of young people that had no memory where they came from, and they could be brainwashed into this future that he had planned for them. Pol Pot did the same thing in Cambodia. He uh, made 1975 the New Year's zero, zero, said every, anything prior to that was irrelevant, and he killed anybody that wore glasses. He said if you wore glasses, you could read. If you read, you knew the history. He killed a third of his country in Cambodia during this communist Khmer Rouge. The French Revolution did the same thing. Right. They destroyed uh, the statue of good King Henry the fourth that tried to patch up Protestants and Catholics. They destroyed the grave of St. Genevieve during Attila the Hun in the fifth century, who was conquering Europe. St. Genevieve got all of Paris to fast and pray and Attila skipped sacking Paris. And so she was considered the patron saint of the city. During the French Revolution, they dug up her bones and trashed them. Why? <clears throat> because they wanted to, excuse me, get rid of anything that had an identity of the past. Uh, so it's so like a gene replacement therapy for a culture. Take out wow, the old DNA, you put in the new. <laughs> well, uh, that's well said. That's very well said, Bill. And that really does help us understand it. So let's go back. Uh, before we let them erase this, let's not let them do that today. And so take us back to Europe, to our founders. And I know it's a very long story and complicated, but give people, let's just pretend that we're talking to people who've never heard this before. And uh, they've heard about uh, the uh, the pilgrims, not just the pilgrims, but all the people that came over here. Kind of set the stage for why they wanted to come here. Right. Well, you know, I wanted to point out uh, it's not a hardware problem. It's a software problem. It's not the skin color. It's the software. You know, we're spirit, mind, and body. Your mind is like a super fancy computer. It's, it's more than that, but it's at least that. And your body's like the computer case, which makes it silly for people to argue over what color the computer case is. Red computers are better than green computers. It's like, hello, it doesn't matter what color your computer or your phone is. What matters is what apps, what software is running on it. It doesn't matter what color somebody's skin is. Are they being taught God software? Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Or is it this selfish CRT that, oh, I've been wrong. I'm a victim, and I've got to make... You know, the Bible says 
that the children shall not pay for the sins of the parents. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. But the kids don't pay. But the CRT is anti-biblical. It's making these little kids pay for some sins of some ancestor, right? That's against the Bible. So, so the battle is who gets to load the software on the next generation's brains. Instead of teaching critical race theory in school, we should send evangelists into the schools to get these kids born again. And if they experience the love of God, they're going to want to love everybody as they would Jesus, right? Whatever you do to the least these, we've done unto me. Anyway, I wanted to throw that in. Yeah, but, no, no, um, that's very good. The, Excellent. Okay, so take us back to Europe. And what was so bad? What was so bad that they gave up everything? Some of them came here and starved and froze to death. Why did they do that? What was the motivation? So uh, all of Western Europe was Catholic, and then the Muslims invaded and surrounded Vienna, Austria, and the Holy Roman Emperor is uh, Charles V of Spain. And he's experiencing a reformation on the inside of Europe with Martin Luther 1517 and these German kingdoms splitting away, and this Islamic invasion from the outside of Europe in 1529 with 100,000 Muslims surrounding Vienna. He tries to stop both, but he can't. And so in 1555, he, he makes a deal with the Protestants called the Peace of Augsburg, where he let every king decide what's going to be believed in his kingdom. And it's great, but in the next century, different kings believed lots of different things. And so you had northern Germany and Sweden were Lutheran, Switzerland was Calvinist, Scotland was Presbyterian, Holland was Dutch Reformed, England was Anglican. You know, Greece was Greek Orthodox, Russia was Russian Orthodox, Serbia was Serbian Orthodox, and of course, Italy, Spain, France, Austria, Poland stayed Catholic. But it was what the king believed the kingdom had to believe. And if you don't, you didn't believe exactly the way your king did, it was considered treason. You were arrested, you were persecuted, you fled. And so let's look at England. England originally was Catholic, and Henry VIII decides to divorce his wife. Catherine of Aragon, the daughter of the King of Spain. The Pope said no, because the King of Spain's army had invaded Rome and arrested the Pope uh, five years earlier. Uh, but uh, Henry said, well, you know, I'm far enough away from Italy. I'm just going to declare myself my own Pope. He starts the Church of England, puts himself on as the head, and he goes on to have six wives. And their fates were divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. So Henry VIII was not a really nice guy to his wives. Anyway, uh, when he you know what? his first wife... You, what, Bill, I'm going to have to interrupt you because there's the music. So we have to take a break before we come back. But this is fascinating. I love the way you tell stories. And so we're sitting at your feet. You're the professor today. And we're talking about uh, how this all got started. And certainly we are starting with what happened to our the, the guys that came here and founded this country for us. Why did they come over? This is a great story. A lot of it was in England. It was from other countries, too. But we'll have more of that story when we return. Sandy Rios with Bill Federer in the morning on AFR Talk. Don't forget to connect with Sandy Rios in the morning on Facebook or email Sandy at Sandy at AFR.net. That's Sandy at AFR.net. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. They discovered that the Indians were farmers too. And because relations between the Pilgrims and the Indians were relatively good at the beginning, there was an exchange of technology. 
and the Native Americans really help them and you have this period of cooperation between the two groups. They learn that what you have to do is put the seed in the ground, but if you put a fish head uh, along with that, it will grow much better. It must have been a, a strange and curious and wonderful thing to see people using fish meal to make the, the soil more productive and things grow faster and more abundantly. It is not just a one-way trade, there will also be the other way of new European crops coming into the new world. But if it weren't for the Native American communities, the pilgrims would have been wiped out. The success of the pilgrims and their descendants was beyond their imagination. And the country that emerged from this is one of the most successful in world history. So it's not at all surprising that Americans have this belief that America is exceptional. All right, the History Channel tells the story so well, at least they did. And uh, I love that little excerpt. And that is, it's Thanksgiving 2021. And the reason why the pilgrims were so grateful, they were grateful to the Indians for their help to help them survive that horrible winter. And they were grateful to God for allowing them to live through it. And so we're going to get to that part of the story. Bill Federer is my guest. AmericanMinute.com is his website. And uh, he's written some terrific books. And his American Minute is just a lot of fun. Uh, and helps bring history to every single day. But Bill, you're telling us that now, how this all started, at least in part, was that uh, we're, we're in England now, and Henry V has uh, this declared himself the head of the church because he wanted to get a divorce and the Pope wouldn't let him. And so uh, the Protestant <laughs> church in England was born out of adultery, which is pretty strange, isn't it? Very weird. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's Henry VIII, and I know the numbers oh, are eight. confusing. I said fifth, he had sorry. Six wives. But, um, yeah, so Thank the uh, scenario, scenario is that uh, his uh, second wife, Anne Boleyn, uh, is a Protestant, and uh, she does not want to be a mistress, and so she insists that uh, he marry her. And uh, But his advisors suggested to Henry that if he was serious about breaking from Rome, he should stop using that Latin Bible. He needs an English Bible, a German princess, a Martin Luther's German Bible. He needs an English Bible. And Henry says, great, get me one. Well, it just so happens a few years earlier, Henry VIII had William Tyndall burnt at the stake for translating the Bible into English. William Tyndall's last words were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Now, a couple years later, the king wants an English Bible, so they take Tyndall's work, polish it up. They call it the Great Bible. And Henry orders a copy of it put in every church in England. It's called the Chain Bible because they would chain it to the pulpit. It was so valuable, and people would like rent and take turns to get up and read it. And, but uh, Henry dusts his hands and says, that's it, we broke from Rome. But something unexpected happened. People began to read it and began to compare what's in this Bible to this king divorcing and beheading his wives. And so a group starts that wants to purify the Church of England. The king doesn't think he needs any purifying, so he persecutes this group. And there's a second group that said it's beyond hope of purifying. We're going to separate ourselves. And they would meet in secret barns and basements by candlelight. They would be arrested, and we call them pilgrims. Now, there's lots of these separatist groups. Some of them are Baptists, some are Congregationalists, eventually some are Quaker. The king, um, uh, one of the later kings, passes the Five Mile Act in 1665. This is, if you are caught preaching without getting approval of the government within five miles of a town, you're a criminal. You'll be arrested. 
Then the king passed the Conventicle Act of um, 1664 that said, if you have five or more people meeting in your home and you're talking religion without having gotten pre-approval of the government, you're a criminal, and they'll bust in and arrest you. They later changed the name of that to the Riot Act and numbered up, up the number to 12. They said, if you have 12 or more people meeting, you could be planning a riot. But of course, they were just reading the Bible, but the, the police would bust into your house, uh, like, you know, bring to memory the little mom, the homeschooling mom in Colorado Springs a, a yes. couple weeks ago where the FBI broke in. And Anyway, the police would bust into your house, pull out a piece of paper and read the Riot Act, which says everyone must immediately disperse or we will arrest you, put you in jail and you could die. It was so serious, it went into our vernacular. Read them the Riot Act. You know who was captured uh, because of this was John Bunyan. And he was having a Bible study with more than a, a dozen people. And uh, as they're dragging him away, he says, better to be persecuted than be the persecutor. He spends 12 <laughs> years in prison. That's where he writes Pilgrim's Progress. So wow. it was a serious thing not to believe exactly the way you, that your government wanted you to believe. And so one of these groups of pilgrims sell their property, and they arranged to go to Holland. Holland had seven provinces, and they had different beliefs, but they worked together to break away from Spain. It was an 80-year war of independence for Holland to break away from Spain. And so this give and take, Holland was the most tolerant country in Europe at the time. And so the pilgrims, uh, some of them sell their property. They buy passage on a ship to go to Holland right before the ship takes off. The captain robs them, turns them into the police, and they're thrown in jail. Another group of these separatists arranged for a Dutch ship to sail along the coast where they would be waiting in little rowboats and rush out and get on the boat and sail away. Well, the pilgrims show up a day early and they're in an inlet and the waves are so rocking and the kids are getting sick and the wives say, can we just wait on shore? And they put the wives and kids on shore. The Dutch ship shows up. The men row out there. They're stowing everything on the boat. But before they can get off and go back and get their wives and children, someone snitched. The British come over the hill, capture the women and children. The Dutch captain says, I don't have an army with me. He pulls his anchor and sails away with the men. Oh, boy. You can imagine those wives and children on shore watching that boat getting smaller and smaller and disappearing over the horizon. For two years, they pass these women and children from one court in England to another. Uh, finally, in one prison, they're in jail, they're they're held captive, and finally a judge says, you really didn't do anything wrong, just go home. They go, duh, we sold our homes. And so just to get them out of their hair, they put them on a boat, sent them over to Holland. Somehow they found their husbands, and then they all settled in Leiden, Holland, and they're there for 12 years. Spain threatens to attack again, and they decide they better flee. Uh, they were going to go to Guyana, South America, where they heard of the Perpetual Spring, but then they remembered Jacksonville, Florida, which was originally Fort Caroline, a bunch of French Protestants, and the Spanish found out about it and butchered all the men and took the women and children away. And so the pilgrims said, we don't want to go anywhere near the Spanish Main, which is the Spanish-controlled area of the Caribbean. So they decided to go to Jamestown. It was founded uh, 14 years earlier uh, by the uh, British. And the pilgrims leave Holland. They go to England. Uh, their boat, the Speedwell, doesn't speed well, starts leaking. They try to fix it, leaks again, and then they have to consolidate, get on the boat. Mayflower, this time they've eaten through a lot of their food. They're sailing further into the winter. It's stormy in the cold North Atlantic. 102 of them confined to the tween deck, a little four-foot-high space. Uh, one dies, one baby's born. Um, one guy's uh, thrown overboard and they in the waves, and they are able to fish him back in. A beam cracks, and they try to put it back in place. Long and short, they make it to the shores of America, 66-day journey. 
and they're 500 miles away from Jamestown. They try sailing down the coast, but uh, off the coast of Cape Cod, it's really shallow, a far distance out, and boats get stuck. 3,000 ships have sunk, sunk off the coast of Cape Cod. It's called the Graveyard Ships. Pilgrims mm-hmm. almost think, captain says, too dangerous to sail, goes back to Plymouth Rock and says, everyone off the boat. And the pilgrims say, well, we have a question. Who's going to be in charge of us? There's no king-appointed person in our group. Uh, and so they do something unique. They give themselves the authority to start a government. It's called the Mayflower Compact. We, in the presence of God, covenant ourselves together to form a civil body politic. To enact just and equal laws, it shall be thought most necessary, unto which we promise all due submission. Simple, revolutionary. It was a polarity change in the flow of power. Instead of top-down rule by kings and sultans and pharaohs and Caesars and kaisers and maharajas, it's ruled bottom-up by we. It's the difference between a dead pyramid ruled top-down and a living tree bottom-up, where every root and every tiny capillary root helps suck in nutrients to help keep this tree alive. And so in the womb of this little Mayflower is this polarity change in the flow of power. And this became a model. And you ask the question, where did the pilgrims get this idea? From their pastor, John Robinson. He's not a king-appointed Anglican clergy pastor. He's one of these congregationalists, which was a model of church government that was modeled after the early New Testament. And it comes from the word ecclesia, or ecclesia, which means the called out. And where Jesus says, upon this rock I'll build my church, and that word church is the called out. It's a Greek word. They call everybody, 6,000 citizens in Athens, they'd call them out of their house to the marketplace where they would talk politics and uh, decide what's going to be done in the city. So it's this church model where everybody's involved. The pastor wants to get everybody to have their own relationship with the Lord and then coach them up so they can become mature Christians and then ultimately replicate and this thing the body of Christ can grow. And they're in a covenant with each other. And the pastor says that they were knit together in a body and covenant of the Lord to care for each other's good. The word covenant uh, is, is where the word compact comes from. Anyway, so these pilgrims, their church government becomes their government government, where everybody's involved, bottom up. This becomes the model for the other New England colonies and eventually the U.S. Constitution, which starts off, we the people. We're granting ourselves the permission to start this government. Wow. And um, so right, it's so a fascinating story. It is a wonderful story. Now, you please, before we run out of time, take us to that first Thanksgiving. I know it's difficult, uh, but give paint that picture, Bill, so that we know what we can know. We do know, really, with great detail what actually happened. It's not just folklore, is it? No, so half the pilgrims died the first winter. Um, there were 18 women, and uh, by the time they were done uh like only five retained their original husbands and they would have the widows marry the widowers and but that next spring they probably wouldn't have survived but out of the woods comes an indian in broken english and then another one a couple days later squanto and squanto uh you know the pilgrims were religiously motivated others weren't and you had spain had a monopoly on the new world and they had gold and you had the english french dutch pirates that would rob the spanish ships and so you had a lot of pirates that are wandering around. And some of these people would sail along the coast of America, lure some unsuspecting Indians under their boat, lock them below deck, sail to Spain, sell them into slavery. And evidently this happened to Squanto. 
And the monks, when they were in Spain, heard about this. They made such a ruckus that they didn't sell them. They gave them to them for custody, and then the monks let him go. And here Squanto hitchhikes his way across Europe to England, and then he works. He learns the language, and then he finally finds a company to drop him off in Newfoundland, and then another fishing company that he would be an interpreter for, and then he dropped him off at Plymouth Rock, only to find his entire tribe was dead. A plague had swept through. William Bradford says that a couple years earlier, a French ship was shipwrecked off Cape Cod, those sand shoals that went far out, and the sailors got ashore, and the Indians never left watching them and dogging them till they got the advantage and killed them all but three or four, whom they sent from one sachem chief to another, making sport with them, using them worse than slaves. Evidently, one of them must have had an illness. The Indians caught it, wiped out the tribe. So tragic, ironically enough, had Squanto not been kidnapped, he most certainly would have died in that plague. Anyway, Squanto's now living with another tribe, and that spring of 1621, you can imagine them coming in saying, uh, hey, Squant, you wouldn't believe it. Some English people are wanting to start a colony on your old stomping ground. And so he uh, um, goes there, uh, and you can imagine you know, the dismay. He walks in, and he says, oh, you guys from, from London? Uh, yeah, I used to live there. Uh, yeah, the the you know, St. Paul's Chapel and the pub down on Warm Street, you know. Oh, here, I grew up here. I know this place like the back of my hand. Over the hills of spring, he teaches them how to go down to the riverbank, take off their shoes, squeegee in the mud and catch eels and clams and uh, teaches them how to fish. They said, we tried that. He goes, no, these are salmon. They spawn. This river will be packed in a in a few weeks. And, and then he tells them how to take a fish and you put the kernel of corn in together and it fertilizes. You have to guard it for two weeks to keep the, the wolves away. And then you take the corn and put it in a pot, shake it over a fire and make popcorn. So popcorn came from the American Indians. He taught them how to catch beaver skins. It was 40 years worth of beaver skins, but he put them on good terms with the other Indian tribes. And so that's why that first Thanksgiving, uh, they were able to have the Indians and they ended up having a 50 year peace. The Indian chief Massasoit got sick and Edward Winslow doctored him up. The fine print was, if you doctor a chief and he dies, you die too. So it was pretty serious. But he, he, he got better. So for 50 years, they had this wonderful peace. Wow. And uh, the pilgrims sent back uh, a ship full of beaver skins to, tr- to pay off their debt. And the Muslims wow. captured it, a Turkish wow. man of it's, war. And, that's, um, a, that's an incredible story. Words where he, he begged Governor Bradford to pray for him that he would go to the Englishman's God in heaven. Wow, wow. What a great story. All of it, so much of it supernatural, and uh, you can hear more about it in the treacherous world of the 16th century and how the pilgrims escaped it by Bill Federer, or go to AmericanMinute.com. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving, each and every one of you. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk.